Well, thanks for showing up today. It's nice to see all these happy faces on an overcast and cool and pleasant day. In the last couple of weeks, I've had a chance to go to two different high schools and give talks to comparative religion classes. Uh, one was a uh, high school in Palos Verdes, and one was a Catholic high school on Franklin, just down the street, Immaculate Heart. Mary Tyler Moore went there. <laughs> And it was nice to interact with the young people because they have um, a lot of interesting questions and issues with religion, as did I when I was young. As I got older, I had fewer <coughs> issues with religion and more issues with myself. But that's how <laughs> life works, I suppose. So one of the uh, girls at the Catholic high school said, you know, uh, we read the uh, chapter on Buddhism, and I thought that it sounded like Buddhism was trying to avoid suffering. <laughs> and in a way, you can see why that might happen, why you might think that's the case. But I assured her that no matter how hard we try to avoid suffering, we still do. And that what the Buddha was doing really was just warning us. Don't be surprised. It will happen. And it will continue to happen until you achieve nirvana. A few hundred lifetimes in the future. So you're faced with this really strong urge to find happiness. And that was the second question I asked the girl who asked that question about suffering. I said, let me ask you a question. If you had a choice between happiness and peace, which one would you choose? And she said, well, of course, happiness. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, it's interesting because what they say about nirvana, it is the ultimate peace. It's not the ultimate happiness. And the problem with happiness is most of the time we're chasing it, never actually getting there. And when we do get to a place in, of happiness, it turns out to be short-lived. And then we start chasing it again. And so the happiness uh, seems to be connected with the sadness, and the pain seems to be connected with the pleasure. And yet both of those don't have a whole lot to do with suffering as far as I can tell because suffering is our reaction to losing the happiness and acquiring the sadness it's our reaction to losing the pleasure and acquiring the pain it is the way we experience the world and it is the way we react to the world because we all know that the world could be a lot better than it is. And as I watch the presidential debates, it just confirms the fact that, yes, the world could be a lot better than it is. So, what's a person to do? What are those Buddhists going to go out and do if they can't avoid suffering? Well, I think, and as I explained to the young people, in the comparative religion classes at the high schools, I explained that 
the Buddha only talked about two things in his entire life once he became the Buddha. And, and the first thing was really important, why we suffer, because everybody wants to know why everything happens. And then the second thing is, gosh, how to end that suffering. And at the Catholic high school, it's always interesting because they seem to have Jesus on the wall. <laughs> and, and that just represents a whole lot of suffering to me. <laughs> And so they look at that every day. Now, I'm not sure in an Asian country, if they have a Buddhist high school, if they have the Buddha simply sitting there peacefully accepting the world the way it is. But maybe they do. And that would be a nice reminder to all the people in class that there is a way out. So I saw there was this guy yesterday on the freeway. And I was going to Leisure World to give a talk to the Buddha Circle, which yesterday might turn out to be the last talk. And I've been going for two years now. And, and the reason I say it might be the last talk is because in leisure world, people are sort of old. And when you get old, there's a possibility of getting sick. And so anything that you sort of put together and hope will be long-lasting you will find it oftentimes just falls apart because people get sick and people get really old. So we had two people pretty much in charge. Uh, one person now has liver cancer and the other person is 86. And what a great teaching it is for me as I approach you know, my elder years with some trepidation, realizing that I'll only have more boundaries and not less, realizing that tomorrow will never be better than today and marching forward anyway. So we decided to sort of stop the Buddha circle because the woman who has liver cancer really needs to focus on getting well and not be concerned about advertising in the local newspaper for the Buddha circle. <laughs> And the other woman at 86, well, she has like a lot of stuff she wants to do too. And that's the best part about going to retirement community is everybody has like a lot of stuff they want to do. And nobody knows how much time they have to do it. And so there's a certain urgency towards life. There's a certain engagement towards life, which I didn't necessarily feel at the high school level. <laughs> they wanted to have life be fun and, and meaningful at some level. And they wanted to engage and, and be part of it, but not accountable for it. And I thought that was just fascinating. So, I'm talking, and I'm talking, and they're starting to listen now. So I say, you know, the Buddha said that that our entire world exists in this fathom-long body, fingertip to fingertip. And that the only world he ever talked about was the inside world and not the outside world. That when he said, we can change the world, what he was really saying is, we can change ourselves. And when he said that, he didn't mean we could be better or wonderful. Those are all possibilities, of course. But he says, we can change 
the way we experience the world. The good and bad that we see in the world is up to us. It's our interpretation. But in order to really have a good interpretation, a skillful interpretation of life, we need to have sort of a practice to do. And then the question was, well, why do you guys have a practice? And I thought that was a good question. Because most religions don't have a practice. They have faith. And you go there hoping for the best. <laughs> you know, and, and the Buddhists come together and realize it's always the worst, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but maybe it could be better if only I tried a little harder. And then our practice is designed to allow us to see the possibilities of our own life. To see the possibilities of, of recording the good, the bad, and not having it be us. That having it be us turns out to be optional. So we have a record of the past. We have hopes for the future. We are sitting here today wondering what will happen next. Most of us probably have a plan, something we want to do later today. I know it's Sunday, so for me, it might be football Sunday. And people say, well, who do you root for as a Buddhist? <laughs> you know? Are you committed to one side or the other? I say, no, I've chosen the middle path when it comes to football. <laughs> it's really not who wins the game, but how they play the game. <laughs> So, I have ideas of what's going to happen, and I have ideas of, of how I'm going to do it, and how I'm going to accomplish all the tasks that need to be done today. And yet, I really don't know if any of that stuff will happen. Because I could be just crossing Melrose and Ben. And then, i got other stuff to worry about. So the Buddha said, we have a lot of attachment and aversion. All the stuff that we think is good turns out to be temporary and always leads to dissatisfaction. And, and all the stuff that we think is bad ultimately will change and not be bad as long as we thought it would be. But bad and good seems to be a value we give neutral stuff, people, circumstances. And we're sort of doing that to ourselves. So let me share again with you the definition of suffering that I like the most. And this was uh, happened years ago in Glendale, California at a seventh grade class uh, on history. And I was speaking about Buddhist history. And little Esmeralda, I still remember her name, she got up and, and said, Reverend Kusla, thank you for the talk. I now understand what suffering is. I said, please, Esmeralda, tell me. She said, suffering is when you want things to be different than they are. And I thought, well, what a nice, simple way of looking at suffering. Because I asked that same question at the Catholic high school to some really smart girls, and not one of them really had that answer because they made it so much more complicated. You know, we think it's emotional, we think it's buried deep in the subconscious, we think of it as being pain and disappointment and all the things, and then we just add these layers, and, and then we try to share 
with people what we think it is and it turns out to be like 12 paragraphs with no beginning or end so just wanting things to be different than they are I thought wow that is so easy to remember and to relate to and then I thought well why do I think things should be different than they are what could I do to bring myself to that place of acceptance with the way things are and one of the things I do is I have a particular meditation practice that allows me to work on that every time I sit and meditate for periods of time half hour 45 minutes an hour I started off with Vipassana insight meditation I didn't like it it was all about clarity it was all about seeing things the way they really were and every time I got close to seeing things the way they really were I became so disappointed it was hard to watch all the greed and hatred and delusion manifest in every human being you know and see it on the streets of LA as you walk and and so rather than just having this sort of acceptance of the way things are I was super critical and knew things should and could be different than they are and we would all suffer less if that was the case if everybody would use their blinkers I would suffer less <laughs> but no nobody's using blinkers I'm suffering more man so then I said there must be a way to meditate and 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 not make it the world worse but make the world better and I, I found it I found it it was it was samatha meditation it was the kind of meditation that makes you feel blissful and happy sort of zoned out eyes not truly focused on anything in particular but that's sort of good I found because I didn't want to see it that clearly which is why I often don't wear my glasses the world looks much better without my glasses on so I did that for like a really long time and I had some of the most fascinating and personal spiritual experiences that I've ever had or ever will have and I I went to depths of my subconscious and and saw arch, arch, archetypes my own personal set of archetypes and I had this idea of the representation of breath manifesting as fireflies or points of light or movement and color and every time any of that visualization happened all my sense stores would just shut down immediately and I couldn't see or hear or smell or taste or touch anything I was completely involved in this internal reality that was manifesting because of some breath control I was doing and because of the focus and concentration and one-pointedness that was laser-like and, and continuous it wasn't momentary like in Vipassana but it was just deeper and deeper and deeper and I would just come out and I'd be cloud nine and I'd just sort of float down the sidewalk and just look at everybody with a half smile and just go wow hey man how's it going you know and like I wasn't stoned I was just in that happy place and I realized happiness is an inside job you can't go out and buy it even though Disneyland says you can you know you can't it's in there all the time but those gymnastics I went through to achieve those states of mind were exhausting 
And afterwards, I would just leave, and I just, wow, I'm beat. I'd want to take a little nap because I'd worked so hard to create that. And then I said, gosh, there must be another way to meditate. Because, you know, I, I did the insight thing. I got great clarity, but no kindness. Then I got the kindness and no clarity. There must be another way to go. And then it was shikantaza, just sitting. So I, I read this like book on Zen and meditation, and I thought, just sitting, how simple is that? What would it be like just to sit? You know? And so it turns out that it's really hard just to sit. And the reason it's so hard is because of attachment and aversion. Do you know, if the good stuff happens while we're sitting, then we want it to happen longer and longer and every time. And the problem with every time is there's only one time. It never happens again. Everything in this world, on this planet, only happens once. It's really disappointing. (laughs) Because some of the good stuff you'd like to repeat forever. And you might run after it for a year or two in the hopes that it will repeat. And it never does. Something similar may occur, something familiar may occur, but it's never the same thing. Okay, so so what do you got to do then? You sort of got to let go of anything that feels good while you're meditating, which goes against the idea of happiness and goes towards the idea of peace. Okay, so do you really want peace? Well, if you do, you got to let go of the happiness because the happiness always had sadness attached to it and it's relative and dualistic and always temporary because of that. So you go, okay. And now you got the bad stuff. And I have much more bad stuff than good stuff. So it's not like I'm really concerned about letting go. I'm more concerned about aversion, pushing away, not wanting it to happen again and again and again. Sore knees, ankles. Blood flow stops. You can't walk after meditation for three minutes. You're paralyzed there, hoping there's not a fire in the house because you'll burn to death. You know? then, then there's this idea of the agitation of the mind. And you just really don't want to go visit all those old memories, all those regrets. And they come up because there's nothing else for your mind to do when you're sitting there and you're just sitting there and there's no technique that you're using to avoid all this internal dialogue and there you sit immersed in scenarios that happened 20 years ago and you say to yourself if only my life would have been so different and then the gong rings you know and that's over, and then the next thing happens, and new memories are made, and new stories are created, and, and sometimes the worst cases are the best stories. So how do you avoid not wanting to relive all those memories? How do you push those away? And the idea is not to push them away. The idea is to just sit with anything that comes up. And the idea is not to attach or have aversion and not to be those things that come up. That the mind now is not you in this kind of meditation. The mind is just something that happens because you have a human birth and a body and a consciousness. 
And those three things combine to give you that experience of you. And of course, as we all know, anatta, emptiness, shunyata, goes directly at the illusion of self and ego. But by gosh, how can you not think it's you? You look in the mirror, it sort of looks like you. You hear your voice, it sort of sounds like you. You know, you forgot the deodorant, it sort of smells like you. How do you just say, okay, that's not me. And sometimes you want to go back. You want to go to that sort of primordial innocence of being five. Oh, those were the best times. You know, you didn't have any real worries, you just had pain and pleasure. And every time you had pain, there were these people in your life that would come and make it feel better. Mom and Dad. Oh, they were so cool. And you didn't have to know anything. You hadn't been to school yet. You didn't have a bunch of concepts you had to deal with. You didn't have a bunch of things you needed to do. And people sometimes want to go back to that. But in the book, Spectrum of Consciousness, by Ken Wilber, Spectrum of Consciousness, he really made a good point in there, I thought, when he said, you can never go back. You can't go home again. You can't go back there. If you want to have that kind of reality for yourself, it needs to be transcendent. Not descending into the past, but transcendent. You need to go beyond yourself. Capital S. If you can go beyond yourself, you then become a little more free, realizing that that thing that looks and talks and smells like us is simply a concept that allows us to be separate and independent. It gives us the illusion of separateness and the illusion of independence so we can react to this very complicated world and live in it in a skillful way and get things done. And I just really like that concept and I spoke to the girls at the Catholic High School about that and I, you know, I, I was in my 30s before I started to think in that way so I'm thinking 16, 17, I don't know. They're still in somebody training. They're still working on getting that self put together. You know, and, and to say, you know, it's not what you think it is maybe falls on deaf ears. So I was thinking, as I was just sitting, that, wow, look who's in charge, and look who's paying attention to all the stuff that's happening for the good and not so good. And then I said, is there a little place that I can go where that doesn't have to be me? And, and there is this little place inside of all of us that's silent. And the true answers in our life are found in that little place of silence, buried deep inside. And meditation practice can often take us to the little place of silence. Beyond concept. So, how do you get beyond concept? You know, because every time our eardrum is stimulated, our optic nerve is stimulated, a bunch of pictures burst in our head. So the helicopter's flying over. I've seen the helicopter fly over IBMC a million times. I know exactly what color it is, what kind it is, how low it's flying by the, by the loudness of the sound. 
And, and sure enough, every time my eardrum vibrates in that way, that picture just like bursts in my head. Well, it's not real. It's a reaction to the sound that allows me to either go towards it or go away from it. To, to stay alive and not get killed. It, I become, I go into survival mode. And that's the best part about the self the ego, the personality, is its main job, its main requirement is to keep us alive. And so far, all of us sitting here, it's working really good. Because we're still alive. But we're also here because we're on a spiritual path of some sort. It could be secular humanism, it could be religious Buddhism, it could just be I want to be a better person. Whatever your religious path is, what you are doing is transcending self-survival and including the other. Your circle is getting bigger. Now it's not only just about me surviving, but it's about my family and friends surviving. Now it's not only my family and friends, it's all the pets, people I don't know, people I don't like. I want them to survive too. The other is slowly becoming as important as I am. And ultimately, in Buddhism, when you get to that place of ultimate experience, there is no separation. That's always been an illusion. We've always been interconnected and interdependent. And you go, yeah, okay, so my spiritual practice is working if I'm becoming less important in my life. Not to the point of not surviving, but to the point of including others. And also realizing that the others live on this planet. And that we need to save the planet because we need to save everybody on it, everything on it. So the spiritual practice goes from self to other and then starts to get bigger and bigger as the distinction between self and other starts to go away. And then it's just about us. And then if people say to you, well, you know, join us. Become a Protestant. It's really good. You know what I say to them? I'm already part of you. We've been connected forever. Just sort of wake up and take a look around. All those people you think are separate are not separate. They are part of you, whether you want them to be or not. So you have one political party, you have two, you have three, you have four. Four ways to separate, five ways to separate. And that gives us a chance to have our dualistic intelligence plug in and find the good guy and the bad guy and pick sides. And the thing I like least about a spiritual path is the good guy and black guy, the white hat and the black hat become almost invisible and everything becomes gray and there's no good guy or bad guy anymore. There's just guys. You know? And gals and they all have their own little perspective and it's never your perspective because we're all individuals and nobody has ever lived our life before. And we're so unique, and yet so much want to be a part of everybody else that we're willing to give up our uniqueness to create a uniformity that makes us all feel comfortable. And Buddhism says, don't go there, because that uniformity will be the death of you. 
you are separate, unique, and connected. And it's the diversity that creates the community, not the uniformity. Now, back in the 1800s, in Indiana, New Harmony, there was a religious group um, that was led by Reverend Rapp, R-A-P-P, a German guy. And they formed this community, and I had a chance in 2003 to go there and give some presentations and lead a retreat with a Catholic nun to 40 Episcopalians on the rule of St. Benedict. It could only happen in real life. <laughs> and they still have the watchtowers there. And, and the people who followed Reverend Rapp were celibate and worked really hard. And the watchtowers were always manned. And what were they looking for? The apocalypse. You know? Well, it didn't happen, so they just disbanded. <laughs> and went on their merry ways. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, you get into this sort of we all need to conform and be like everybody else and we need to have a common goal and the common goal turned out to be the apocalypse in this case and, and let's go and let's not have any kids because that'll be introducing new perspectives to the community and that might sort of ruin this conformity that we've created over time. So keep the kids out of it, because kids will always do the opposite of what the adults are doing. And that just creates even more diversity and even more chances for success in this very interesting world we live in. So I'm sitting there, and I'm still sitting there, and I'm still just sitting there, and I have these moments of, of just being this transparent pane of glass. And I have the sensation that all things are just sort of passing through me. And I have no real reason to connect or hold on to anything that's going on in my immediate environment. And I have no reason to actually push it away or have aversion or hatred or anger towards it. And there it is. And it's, a, it's an interesting balance because you have to be so focused on nothing, not an object of meditation, you're just sitting there focused on not being anything at all and letting it go through you and then and then the gong rings now can you take that with you can you take that state of mind with you and go into the world and walk down the sidewalk and not have a whole lot of aversion and not have a whole lot of attachment and if that's the case how would it be how would your life be different you'd have this wonderful sense of equanimity and inner peace. You wouldn't have much happiness or sadness or much pain or pleasure. And if it did arise, it wouldn't be you necessarily. It would just be your reaction to the environment. And it wouldn't even be your reaction. It would just be a reaction to the environment. Because you now have sort of stepped aside for a while and simply let the process occur. Well... It actually does make your life a little bit different. It does make it a little bit better. And it's not, the, it's not indifference. It's not not caring. But it's not having to care because it's you. It's responding to the situations, and if things need to be done, it, they need to be done because suffering is occurring. 
and you then enter into a relationship with the situation, person, or persons to help reduce the suffering. And then you're on your way. So going to a party probably wouldn't be an option because everybody's having so much fun, you know? And they're all sort of, you know, uh, changing their consciousness chemically. And it's just, life is wonderful. And so there's no need for you to be there, nothing for you to do. But if you go down the street and go into Vons, you go, yeah, this is where I need to be. We got hunger here. People are suffering. Maybe I can suggest a particular kind of cottage cheese to make their day better. You know? And so you go in there and you start doing your Buddhist magic. Oh, you know? And it's not that you're really feeling good or bad, it's you're feeling the middle path. You're sort of like uncommitted. Everything's a possibility. You know? Your preferences and choices now have been put on the back shelf. And you're going through and seeing all these cans and bottles and packages just smiling at you. And you go, wow, I never noticed this before in this way. This is a remarkable place to just walk around in. You know, and an hour later you finally have your four things and you leave. And then your day continues. But then you're forced to do things like go to work or have a relationship. You know, and the cats need to be fed, or the koi pond needs to be cleaned, or whatever your duties are in your life. And, and then can you have equanimity about that? Now, there's nothing better than finding an empty laundry basket. Because it means all the laundry is done. But can you see a full laundry basket and have equanimity and balance? Can you understand that you're now going to be involved in another process? that will benefit those around you because your clothes won't smell. And you'll benefit too because you'll have that nice, clean feeling and smell to enjoy as well. And so you do your laundry, but not in a hateful way or a happy way. You just do it because it's part of the process of your life in this particular moment. And if you forget, if you lose your balance and go into past and future, there's a way back. And the way back is physical sensation. Have you ever heard of that phrase, you know, pinch yourself to see if it's real? That's the deal. When you pinch yourself, that sensation is happening right now. So if you're sort of wandering in past and future, and you do a little pinch, you come right back. And there it is, laundry. Okay, cool. Is it real? Yes, it is. Okay. You know? So you continue. As I'm going through the story of my own personal meditation practice, I also talked about recitation. And my, my list of people that need to be thought of and good vibes need to be sent is continually growing. Because there are a lot of people who have a lot of health issues. And I know one guy, uh, brain cancer, we have liver cancer, we have lung cancer, a lot of cancers. And, and I know these people. And, and I want to participate in their wholeness and wellness. And so I'll do the loving-kindness meditation. I try to do that every morning when I get up. May I be happy, peaceful, and then I include the pets and the people, and I include people I don't know, and then I include people that don't have bodies or do have bodies or don't have consciousness and do have consciousness. I try to cover everything and everyone. 
And then at the end I go, may the suffering ones be suffering free, and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, may the sick find health relief. And then I start adding the names of my prayer list. And thinking about them, picturing them in my mind, and sending them good vibes. I don't want to say prayer, you know, for me it's always sounds a little hokey. Well, we're going to pray. I'm thinking, does that really do any good? Maybe it does. I don't know. But back in the 60s, everybody sent vibes. <laughs> and so I like vibes better. <laughs> so I have all these picture, these people pictured. I'm sending them good vibes. And, and it coming from the heart and not the intellect. It's like we got to... The intellect is good for a lot of things, but not making people feel better, unless you're a doctor. So for me, it's the heart. Can I open the heart? Can I have a direct pathway to their heart and send them that stuff? And so if they don't get better, can they die well? I don't add that part because it's really hard to die well. It's probably much easier to get better. You know, but if you have to die well, Buddhism has a lot of good ways to die well. And it takes practice. And if you think you're going to be dying soon, I would suggest practicing. Because you don't want to start practicing in the hospital when you're plugged into the wall. Too many distractions. And people will not let you practice. They want you to get well. And they will bother you and they'll take blood samples and urine samples and feed you and take the food away. And do you want to go to the bathroom? And just all these things all the time. No rest. No chance to practice. So you need to, when you're feeling good, feeling healthy, ready to go, I'm going to practice dying. That's when you need to do it. So in the event that you will die, which is assured, of course, you'll have something to do. You'll tell the doctor, I'm going to practice dying now, thank you. And they'll be impressed, and so will the hospice workers, because they usually help you die. Now you can encourage them to jump on your bandwagon and help you die. And maybe they can learn a thing or two as well. And then just as soon as you die, you're going to be reborn again. To go to the whole thing one more time. Birth, sickness, old age, death, no hope. <laughs> and it's that giving up, it's that surrender to no hope that gives you a chance to live and die well. Because all your expectations have been blasted because of all the past lifetimes you've lived. All the times you failed and partially succeeded. All the times you thought you could live forever and didn't. All the times you thought you'd never get sick and did. Those things become a constant reminder, even in this one lifetime, of don't take it for granted. This life we have right now is one big darn miracle. You know, have you seen how many people get divorced? Have you seen how many people don't like each other? We'll never talk to each other. We'll never see them. And somehow our parents found each other and were deluded enough to think <laughs> marriage would be the way to go. And not only that, they decided to have a family, not knowing who would show up. 
<laughs> and then we showed up. And then they had to make adjustments all the time to compensate for the people they didn't think were going to show up in their life. <laughs> then as they reached middle age, and the young lads left, and the young lasses left, they sort of left each other. You know, our job is done. Every human needs to mate, have a family, but after that, let's play some golf. <laughs> you know, so you get divorced, and then you find somebody else, and then you get divorced and find somebody else, and maybe a couple kids. And if you're lucky enough, you'll have time at the end of your life to reflect on what life means and what you can do now to make your life even better by being more sensitive to the issues and seeing that it is a miracle and you are a miracle and this life was always a miracle even though most of the time you took it for granted wow how cool is that and then you like weren't here forever especially if you're Christian, Jewish or Muslim you weren't here for like ever and then you're here for 70 years and then you're not going to be here forever again your life has forever bookends on it when you weren't there and yet we take it for granted that we're here of course I'm here and seven billion others are here what's the big deal? how impossible is it? that's the stuff that I get out of my meditation practice and studying Buddhism the miracle of life and how rare it is and the opportunity that we all have right now because we have found the Dharma a hundred years ago we'd have to be scholars speak three or four languages now all we gotta do is go to Amazon.com <laughs> there they are 10,000 books that is so cool and the Dharma is our only refuge I don't care what kind of refuges you think you have I know in the 1960s I lived in Phoenix Arizona and we had John F Kennedy as president and we had the Cuban Missile Crisis and we had atomic war and we had people in my neighborhood that dug a hole in the backyard and made a bomb shelter and then they got like a year's worth of food and I'm thinking to myself you're going to be the only ones here it's going to be really boring and then you're going to get cancer from all the radiation and die a miserable death it's much better when the bomb blasts to just run towards the light <laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah. Let's make it spectacular. <laughs> so all along the way we've had these different forms of refuge that would protect us and save us. But nothing will ever protect us and save us other than the Dharma. It is the best refuge you could ever have. It works while you're alive and it works when you die and you don't need anything else you don't need pictures on the wall you don't need music playing in the background you don't need candles burning all you need is enough psychic energy to keep the Dharma alive in your brain until brain death occurs 
and then you're going to have a wonderful rebirth and if you're lucky enough to go to Buddhist heaven before your next rebirth on earth everything will be just the way you always wanted it to be except you won't be there but you know for a Buddhist in life we're not here anyway so we've had a lot of practice not being there and it's still happening how cool is that? So I'm excited to go into all these high schools and colleges. I'm excited to share the Dharma as I understand it. I'm excited to give them a sense of of well-being and the possibilities that their life can become. But they need to stay focused. They need to have a practice. And they need to have an idea of who they are in the beginning and who they aren't in the end.